You may be seated. Lord, we ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, but now Christ is in you, the hope of glory. I once knew a couple, uh, we'll, we'll call them Jack and Stephanie, this was years ago, um, and that's obviously not their real names, but they're pretty, a typical couple. They'd been married for a while, they had, I think they had a couple kids, um, they'd gotten along okay at first, well, okay, not, things were great at the beginning, but there's an enthusiasm, a sort of optimism when you first, you know, form a relationship with someone, you think, we're going to get through this, this is going to be, we, we can make it, we sort of ignore, you know, love is blind is the phrase, right, you just ignore the hiccups along the way, and, um, but things didn't stay great. They, they continued to, or didn't stay okay even. They continued to get worse. And you know, mom and dad's relationship wasn't that great either. And so the bar is kind of low. But eventually, things got to the point where they were bad. So they, they had come to see me. And what had happened is rather than growing and learning more about how to work together, Jack and Stephanie were fighting more and more intensely. And here's how it would go. There, there'd be something that would tee it off. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter what, right? Like, who, who knows how these things start? Somebody's late home from work. Someone, uh, you know, maybe um, spends too much time talking with their friends, or they're, or they're gone too much, or someone forgets to take out the trash or to bathe the dog, or who knows. But, but something would start, and there'd be a conversation. And, it, and there'd be a little bit of back and forth. Someone would take it defensively. Someone would criticize. And pretty soon, things would escalate, right? The, the complaint about the dog that wasn't bathed or the trash that wasn't taken out would turn into a criticism about the other person, which would turn into defensiveness, which would then go to contempt, right? You, it's your fault that I'm in, you know, this or that situation. And eventually, things would get so heated that Jack would just shut down. He'd just stop. He'd stop responding. And this, for, for Stephanie, oh, this was too much. That he wouldn't condescend to the argument was just a bridge too far. And so she would escalate, and things would get worse and worse until eventually Jack would erupt, and then things would be said or things would be done that couldn't be forgotten, that couldn't be undone. You see, there's this cycle that just goes over and over, and eventually they would end by distracting themselves by getting away. They just leave each other with these feelings of abandonment and loss and questions of how did we even get here? It's a pretty common pattern. Some of you may have witnessed a pattern like that. If you've been in a relationship at all, I, I would suspect that there are pieces of that that you could sort of plot out in your own relationships. Um, you know, the thing that I think is, is pitiable about that pattern is that it's not something anyone wants. It's not Jack doesn't wake up in the morning, Stephanie doesn't wake up in the morning and think, hey, I, I'd like to pick a fight today that will end in abandonment and loneliness. That's not, that's not the goal. And, and, but the pattern sort of takes on a life of its own, right? And it, um, you know, if you ask Jack, if you say, what was going on even, he'll, he'll say, when, when I shut down, it's, I'm feeling so overwhelmed, I'm worried that I'm going to say something. Right? But, but the pity is that he's trying to protect the relationship, and yet what it ends up doing is actually just makes things worse. Right? And, you know, it, you, and you do this with Stephanie, too. It's on both sides. They're stuck 
They're stuck, stuck in this kind of this cycle that they can't get away, away from. The, the patterns there and their attempts to fix things get sucked up into it, into the cycle of anger and disconnection. And the, the thing I want to point to right now is that this is not really about marriage, right? We could, we could talk about that. But really, this is, that's, that kind of pattern is true of the human condition in general. There's a way in which that stuckness, that inability to fix things from the inside is true of all of our efforts to fix things. How many things we could point to, you point to politics or to, to society or to even things within our own selves, right, where we come up with solutions to try and fix things and they just get worse. Goethe said, man must always go astray wherever he is striving uh, Michel Foucault said, you know, even our attempts to fix injustice are somehow always implicated by injustice. When I am trying to sort of, you know, if there's some kind of oppressive power and I seize power to try and knock it down, well, I've just become the problem. Paul said, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall save me from this body of death? So the passage then begins, you were alienated from God. Another translation puts it, you were estranged from God. There's no hope of your making up the gap. Something has to come from outside of the system. If there's to be any hope at all, Paul was saying, it's going to have to come from somewhere else. And that's, that's sort of the foundation of the gospel, right? That's the that's the building block that, you know, everything else comes out of, right? If you've been in the church at all, you've, you've probably heard a message similar to that, and it's true, it, it bears repeating. But here's what I want to draw out right now, is that that's the premise of the gospel. Paul starts with that, and then he goes somewhere. It's, it's sort of like if I, when, you know, when I got done working with Jack and Stephanie, maybe we got to a place where the conversations were going better. You can imagine, though, Jack saying, so what do we talk about now? There has to, it's, it's more than just fixing the fact that there are problems. There has to be something that life is for. And that's where Paul is taking them, right? So what we have here then, it's kind of like the writer of Hebrews says, don't be content with just relaying the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith to God. There's more here. We, yesterday, I uh, took the kids swimming. Some folks invited us over. We went to their home, and, um, you know, it was lovely. It was lovely to get out of the house. We get out of the van, and somehow, instantly, the kids, by the time I've gotten out of the front door of the van, the kids have already got, like, their puddle jumpers on. You know, they can't move, and they're, you know, and so we waddle them up to the front. And what if we had gotten into the house, and this is a lovely foyer, y'all. Um, okay, well, it's good to see y'all. Come on, kids, back in the van. What? No! We, we came here for the pool. You have to keep going. The pool is in the back of the house. You have to keep going deeper in. We don't just stop there. That's, that's kind of what it's like here. Paul has got a lot to say, and we're at the very beginning of Colossians. We're moving a little further in. And the, the first step there is that breaking in of Christ. There are a few movements we're going to go through, but the first one, just to, I want to spend just a moment there because there's a piece we need, and then we'll, we'll keep going, is that Christ comes from the outside. That Christ isn't just another teacher. He's not, he's not saying, it's not, you know, another in a long succession of people saying, hey, you should try harder. Or just, you know, hey, don't try at all. Just pretend the problem's not there. He's not doing either of those things. Christ is coming from the outside to fix a problem that none of our efforts or lack of efforts were going to fix in the first place. And that's why, the, you know, the, Father Daniel mentioned last week, there's this beautiful poem right in between the lectionary readings. If you uh, watch the Bible Project video on YouTube, 
Uh, Bible Project is a group that sort of makes these kind of summaries of, of different books of the Bible, and it's really well done. But they, they kind of highlight the role of this poem. Uh, and we, uh, uh, it's, like I said, it's in between last week's lectionary and this one. It's this reflection on who Christ is. And the whole point here is to highlight that Jesus, like I said, is not just another teacher. He's, it, Paul says, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. It's not just that Jesus has a better way of playing the game. It's that he owns the game. And he's giving you a new way to be within the whole, you know, to, to live your life. It's not just trying harder at life. It's living a different kind of life. And so he's fixing their eyes upon Christ because the glory of Christ is the antidote to all of our own intractability, our own inability to make any meaningful progress. So Christ has saved you. That's the first part. He's broken into the world, and now he's changed you for a purpose. He's got something he wants you to do, and this is where we're going then with the next part of the, of the passage in Colossians. You know, my old, my old way of being has a purpose. It's me, right? That's all of my actions, all of my relationships really get plotted on this kind of, uh, you can imagine like a graph of avoidance of pain and, um, and you know, really uh, kind of grasping of power, Right? It's all, that's really all of my, kind of that part of me that's still holding out on the gospel, that still doesn't sort of press into the life that God is offering. It's, it's really trying to make sure that I avoid pain, that I secure power. Think about it with the serpent. It's the same thing with Eve, right? You're not going to die. There's no pain. You're going to become like God. There's power. That's a win. I mean, that's like a straight trajectory, right? You've got, you've hit, you've checked both the boxes at this point. So all of our lives, you know, the sort of impulses of the flesh boil down to those two things. How do I avoid pain and, and then secure power? But now Paul is saying Christ has plotted your life on a new, a completely different axis. And, and he points that out in verse 24. He begins with himself and he says, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. That's a weird line. I rejoice in my suffering. What is it about suffering that causes Paul? It's not just that he's saying, I can put up with suffering for your sake. I mean, like, I love my kids. I'll put up with suffering for their sake. I don't know that I rejoice in it. He's rejoicing in their suffering. Suffering far from being the measure of failure, which is what it was on the sort of the old way, now somehow becomes for Paul a measure of success. Why? He says, because in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, the church. In my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. That's also an odd phrase. That, it's kind of like, um, well, it can be a little confusing. What is Paul saying? It's like with the pool example. If we, if, we left the, if we left the foyer and we got to the back and there wasn't a pool at all, right? Like, what do you mean you're making up for Christ's afflictions? I thought the whole point was that Christ... Had, had saved us, that Christ was sufficient, you know, right? And we don't earn our salvation. That seems like a pretty firmly grounded, uh, you know, staple of the faith. Why, why does Paul say that he's making up Christ's afflictions? And, you know, even if you look at the letter of Colossians, this, if you interpret it as that something is lacking in Christ, then what's the point of the whole poem that came at the beginning about Christ being from the outside, about Christ being the one head of the church, that Christ being the summation of all things? How could that admit of 
something lacking. But here's the deal. It turns out Paul isn't revealing something here to us about Christ. He's revealing something about himself. So Paul isn't revealing to us something about Christ. He's revealing something about himself, about what Christ has done to him. He's saying, I'm not playing the old game anymore. I'm not following the old script. Christ has made a new thing. He's made a people identified with himself. When Paul says that, he, that he's identified with Christ, when he talks about Christ in you, he's not saying associated. It's not like, well, I have like a membership card and I get a discount when I go to the store, or maybe I vote for Christ in the primaries or something like that. He's saying that there's a way in which his life has been subsumed into Christ. One commentator uh, puts it this way. He says, for Paul, part of the meaning of Jesus' messiahship, that is his kingship, is that the Messiah represents all his people so that what is true of him becomes true of them. This is what he has in mind when he talks about people being in the Messiah, in the King. When he died and rose, there's a way in which his people died and rose with him. In verse 24, the point that is that Paul sees his own suffering now as not an addition to the work of Christ, but an extension to it. He's not adding to Christ's salvation of the world. He's participating in it. Christ has broken in. He's interrupted the pattern of the world. He's rescuing people from it. And the announcing of that rescue, the going and seeking out, the finding and bringing back, the restoring of true and right relationships, true and right humanity, all of that is the work of Christ through the people of God, through Paul, right? There's, you know, it's, it's like the verse says, how can we believe unless, someone, unless we've heard? And how can we hear unless someone is sent? Christ is sending you to accomplish his work in the world. So when Paul, suffer, and when Paul suffers for that, well, that's just more evidence of his identification with Christ. The way of Christ is suffering. Christ suffered. His people will suffer. Christ said, if the world rejected me, it will reject you. So for Paul, the presence of suffering in his life is something to rejoice in because it's evidence of his union with Christ, with the one whom he loves, Christ working in Paul. And then Paul takes that truth about himself and he turns it out to the people of God. It's not just Paul, it's all the people of God who are in Christ. Christ in you all, Christ in y'all, right? The hope of glory. That, that's the title of the, of the sermon series, right? Christ in y'all, the hope of glory. For the Christian, then, there's a very real sense in which your life, your experiences are incorporated into Christ. Christ is working out his salvation of the world through you. And by the way, the, the fact that we do this imperfectly, that, that much of our life, like the, sort of like the old airline pilot, you know, 90% of life is being off course and trying to get back on course, right? The, the fact that that's true doesn't contradict Paul's point. Indeed, that's part of what he wants to say is it's not about you. It's about Christ. He's the hope, the assurance of glory. You're called to collaborate, to work with Christ in proclaiming the gospel, including in your own heart. But ultimately, it's Christ's work. He's the assurance that it's going to work out. He's the assurance of success, of real progress. We could put it this way, Christ has broken into the world and the spirit of Christ now rushes forward, pushing out constantly the boundaries of the kingdom. 
And the mystery is that in Christ, you are both witness and contributor. You bear witness to the wondrous work of God, and you somehow contribute to that work. You yourself become an instrument of his presence, an instrument of real, actual change in the world. So how how does this work? How do we participate in or or partake in? How do we co-labor with God? I'd like to spend our last few minutes thinking about the implications of, of this passage, particularly that Christ, the assurance of glory, is in you. I think we co-labor with God in many ways, in in as many ways as there are implications of the gospel. In every place in which the gospel has something to say, you are called to be there and to testify, to give voice to the work that Christ has done and is doing. And this this is super practical, so let let me show you real quick. When we get done here today, the cross will go out of the room, right? Christ precedes us in all of our work. And the deacon will exhort you to do the work of the kingdom, right? And immediately from that moment, as soon as that happens, you're going to begin interacting with people who live in the midst of a broken and cynical world where nothing seems to get better. People who need to hear the gospel because every person you talk to during our coffee fellowship or as you you walk up the hill, every one of those people, every person you see has a heart that still needs to hear the gospel, Even your brothers and sisters are caught in this tension between Christ and the world, living in that place of of now and not yet, of of being redeemed and yet also living in brokenness. Someone has said that the church is a field hospital. We come here for healing. Partner with God in that healing. But it doesn't stop there. After that, you'll go home and you'll begin your week and your mission hasn't stopped. It's just begun. You, y'all, are the presence of Christ in the world. You're his body. How do you know someone is somewhere? Well, that you presumably you see their body, you hear their body. When Paul says that we're the body of Christ, he's saying you're the presence, you're the evidence of Christ in the world. So be the presence of Christ to your neighbor. Live truthfully and justly with those around you. Invest in crossing that chasm of isolation and loneliness between people, just as the bridge-building God has crossed the chasm to you. Consider not just reactively in the moment, but proactively. How can I put myself into positions to testify to the gospel? Where is a need that God has equipped me or can equip me to answer? You know, and some of you are, are already engaged in that work through, through CASA or campus ministries, through working with the homeless or the poor or, or working for justice, right? The, continue in that work. Some of you are in fields of work that are places of profound brokenness where the pressure to collaborate in evil is constant and pernicious. pernicious. That's a mission field. Pray for the Spirit. God, help me to see how to follow your Spirit in proclaiming your kingdom in this place. I have a, I have a good friend from college. She, her mission is, is to people in the financial sector. And it's, it's not a cop-out. It's not like she like, really wanted a job and she's trying to kind of baptize it and make it okay. She's passionate about, hey, no one's preaching the, the gospel to CEOs. So that if you're there, if God puts you in that position, that's your mission field. Go and proclaim the gospel in that place. Pray that God will put before you in stark contrast the life of the self and the life of Christ, that Christ will show you the suffering of those around you so that you can be to them the presence of the suffering Christ. 
And finally, there are others of you, and I, I say this with the love of Christ, because there's a way in which this is true of all of us. Others of you are maybe sitting on the fence. You're not, you're not moving. Maybe life is, life is too hectic right now. It's too busy. You're not really sure maybe about whether or not you want to invest in this kind of Christ at the center kind of life. Or maybe you're frozen, not sure how you could even begin that's the case, I want to suggest that part of what might be going on is that the gospel hasn't made it all the way in, that you're, you're stuck in the foyer, right, and you need to move on deeper into the house. If you're stuck in that place, it may be that you need Christ to break further in, that there are parts of you that still need to hear the gospel. But here's the good news, is that you can pray for that. You can ask for that. You can pray, Lord Jesus, I'm still at the center of my own life. And I'm still thinking of you just as a means to reassure myself. Convict me of your gospel. Identify me with yourself. Help me to see my life not just as saved by you, which is true, but also transformed by you. And here's the deal. Here's, this is where the gospel comes in, is that when you pray that prayer... Hear the words of our Lord, what he says in, in Revelation at the end of Scripture. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. I like it. There's another translation that says, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. Christ broke into the pattern of this world and he's offered to all of us a new way of being, not just for the forgiveness of sins, but for the restoration of life, his life, the life of the people of the King. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.